I think given where we're at in the coal market, the goal is how do you optimize these solutions? How can we do it smarter, do it better, do it cheaper, make it more reliable, fundamentally do more with less. We're trying to keep coal alive as, and economical as long as possible. And these folks that have these dry scrubbers on the back end as part of that. This is EnergyCast, and I'm Jay Dowenhauer. Today we are talking about scrubbers, the critical components that ensure power production remains as clean as possible. I've never done a deep dive into air scrubbers, though we've done several carbon capture technologies. In the U.S., for the time being, CO2 is not technically a pollutant, but there are several constituents that are, and left unchecked could lead to some nasty results. I've said this before. We seem to have identified the root causes of environmental challenges we face today. That wasn't always the case in the early days of the Industrial Revolution. Back in episode 26, I noticed that different regions in the United States look at environmental regulations differently because they've had different experiences with mistakes made in the past. For instance, I used to work for a firm in Connecticut that made a lot of its revenue on environmental cleanups that have now lasted for decades. By the time many of these processes made it to places like Texas and Oklahoma, these painful lessons had been learned, and regulations there aren't so severe. We've learned how harmful unchecked air emissions could be as well. Back then, no one ever thought a little smoke would make a difference. It's a wide open sky, after all. One of the strongest examples of this occurred in the United Kingdom in the 1950s. I never heard about this event until my wife and I started watching The Crown on Netflix. In the fourth episode, smog from all the coal-burning chimneys and power plants hits London and never lets up. This goes on for four days, and the show paints a terrifying picture of the prospect that the smog may never lift. John Lithgow plays Winston Churchill, who at the time struggled to put the event in perspective. It has been an unusually cold winter, and there are only so many things that I, as Prime Minister, am prepared to inflict on your subjects as a reward for winning a world war and prevailing over fascism, evil, and tyranny. Letting them freeze is not one of them. You do not seem unduly concerned. I'm not. <laughs> the environment versus energy conflict is still an argument we see today. Though by the end of this episode, Churchill recognizes the need to do something. I have witnessed scenes here today, the likes of which we have not seen since the darkest days of the Blitz. To that end, I pledge to make available with immediate effect a full and independent public inquiry into the causes of air pollution to ensure that such a calamity may never befall us again. We're told Britain went on to pass the Clean Air Act four years later. The United States first passed a Clean Air Act in 1963 and would go on to amend it five more times. My guess is these laws and others now guide emissions controls for our power plants. When talking about pollutants, there are really only a few culprits. They are nitrogen oxides or NOx, which cause smog. Selective catalytic reactors are the industry standard for scrubbing this out. 
You also have physical particulate matter emissions, which can lead to respiratory and cardiovascular issues. These are usually filtered out by a bag house or an electrostatic precipitator. And finally, we get to acid gases, which is what my guests and his association deal with most frequently. He mentioned sulfur dioxide and hydrogen chloride. Mercury is also an issue. For these, there are wet scrubbers and dry scrubbers, which we'll spend most of the episode covering. These dry scrubbers use some form of calcium to absorb these acid gases out of the exhaust flue gas. Dry scrubbers like spray dryer absorbers and circulating dry scrubbers describe the mechanical motion happening. My guest is also a big proponent of dry sorbent injection scrubbers because unlike the first two, the flue gas doesn't need to be as cooled down. One of the topics we discussed as recently as episode 116 is how long coal plants will continue to run. When you consider the international users, it could be much longer than we think. But it is the mission of my guest and his associates to ensure that what emits from the smokestacks is as clean as possible. My guest today is Jerry Hunt, president of the Dry Scrubber Users Association, a trade association comprised of companies that mainly address the acid gas end of emissions controls. Jerry and I cover the gamut of scrubbers, and he explains how one scrubber can affect the next. I first came in contact with the group back at PowerGen International in late 2019. I'd given a presentation, and one of DSUA's members asked if I'd like to participate in their conference the following year. Of course, COVID scrapped all those plans, but it was nice to finally reconnect and chat for this episode. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jerry Hunt. We're here with Jerry Hunt, president of the Dry Scrubbers Users Association. And Jerry, just for the uninitiated, what do we mean by dry scrubbers? So this would entail any kind of dry scrubbing technology that you'd be familiar with, such as like a spray dryer absorber or a circulating dry scrubber or dry sorbent injection. They all fall under the nomenclature of a dry scrubber system that would be covered by the DSUA. And what is that exactly scrubbing for? So they're scrubbing any kind of acid gas emissions, such as SO2. HCl are primarily the big ones, but also any kind of sulfuric acid or HF. And typically on the back end of these also include some kind of particulate capture system like a bag house or an ESP to ensure you're not putting any fugitive dust out into the atmosphere as well. And what about NOx? That's usually another technology, right? Yeah, that's separate altogether. As we know, all these technologies, there's typically somewhat of a whack-a-mole effect. So in many cases, what can happen with one, what seems to be a relevant technology can happen to another other can have an impact downstream. For example, while DSI is a great example of dry scrubbers, doesn't have an impact necessarily on NOx, there are folks that apply upstream of an SCR to help improve operating scenarios by taking out, say, sulfuric acid to uh, enhance operating expense associated with the NOx control technology. Right. This takes me back to my early days with the Clean Coal Technology Foundation in late 07, early 08. I had to do a lot of research just for coal technologies in general. And one of the terms I'd hear a lot in that research was BACT, Best Available Control Technology. I take it that's a term that's used a lot in this field. Yeah, I think a lot of that work in the past kind of set the precedent for installation of and understanding what's the capability of acid gas control for these kind of dry scrubber technologies. I think there's 
been a lot of operating history since 2007, 2008 with these dry scrubbers. So in many cases, there are federal rules like the match rule, for example, that drove, say, HCL capture. And then you see the National Ambient Air Quality Standards or some kind of a consent decree that's ultimately driving, say, SO2 that ultimately leads to folks installing like an SDA or a CDS or, or a DSI system. Okay. Or you use a lot of acronyms. Here. I know. Yeah. You'll have to catch me if there's any I'm throwing out there without defining them ahead of time. I'll try to get them all in the monologue for you. Okay. Uh, do most plants, particularly the coal plants, now have BACT on the back end? How does that work with these power plants? So some of them grandfathered in based on how old they are, or do they basically all have to have some sort of, I guess, best available control on them? So I would say there's a lot of, again, the federal rules of the Clean Air Act, for example, drove a lot of SO2 capture. So folks had either installed scrubbers or in the past converted to a lower sulfur coal, like the pulverized river basin or the PRV coal. Then there were also federal rules such as the mercury air toxic standard, the match rule that drove people to install dry sorbent injection systems for HCL capture as well. So I think we've got a pretty good understanding of the capability of these various technologies. And there's different, I'd say, drivers in the coal world that kind of drove the need to install SO2 capture or HCL capture. They're the National Ambient Air Quality Standards is something that, so if there was a PRB coal-fired unit that didn't have a scrubber that had lower SO2 emissions, but say a rule change came through and forced them to have to install something for additional SO2 capture. That's where they kind of looked at these dry scrubbing technologies and decided whether they needed, say, a DSI system or a spray dryer or a CDS system to comply with, say, a local rule change specific to them. Yeah. A typical coal plant, even lignite, which is a little bit dirtier grade mm-hmm. of coal, on a typical smokestack, how clean is that flue gas? It's pr- honestly probably a lot cleaner than what people perceive coal to be. A majority of the major pollutants, you know, NOx, the SO2, the HCL, the mercury, certainly particulate. There's control technologies that probably a vast majority, if not all the coal plants today, and whatever the local regulations are that require them or the federal rules that force them to comply, they're doing it. So, for example, HCL capture is something where the federal rules require them to be somewhere around two parts per million or less. So there's very small concentrations of HCL going out there and similarly with the mercury concentrations and same with sulfuric acid and SO2. So there's been a lot of work. I think that what's coming out of the stacks of these coal plants isn't necessarily as polluted or dirty as someone may perceive it that's not familiar with what the rules are and the control technologies are capable of achieving. Right. And I think a lot of times these particulates, these pollutants that have been scrubbed out, have been scrubbed out to such an extent that, I mean, essentially it's just steam and CO2 coming out of the stack. And so what about CO2? And do you consider any kind of carbon capture to be a dry scrubber? Is that a different family? I would say that's a different family in years to come, whether it's implicit or explicit part of DNA. SUA because some of the dry scrubbing technologies and folks I've talked to, they mandate a very low SO2 concentration before they go into, say, a CO2 scrubber. So whether they're having to reduce, say, their SO2 emissions in order to make the carbon capture technologies more technical and economically viable, that can become an aspect of it. But as it stands today, CO2 is something that's, I'd say, separate from the dry scrubbers user association discussions. Yeah. And my understanding that most of the technologies for carbon dioxide absorption are means. You're basically injecting the flue gas into a liquid, right? That's my understanding. I'm not a CO2 capture expert, but there's certain means and other consumables 
that are used and they have a competitive interaction with say SO2, which is why ultimately at the end of the day, some of these dry scrubbing technologies may be viable as part of a CO2 capture because you want to take out as much of the acid gases as economically possible prior to the carbon capture systems installed. Right. The DSUA, your organization, I took a look at some of the membership and many of those companies are in the mineral business like lime. And this is used to remove acid gases, like you mentioned, HCl and sulfur dioxide Mm -hmm. can lead to acid rain. I think we used to hear a lot about that in the 80s, you know, trying to get things like that. Lime is still the best solution. I would say that a majority of when we're talking about a spray dryer or a circulating dry scrubber, those are predominantly, I'll call them calcium sorbents. So whether they're in the form of a quick lime or a hydrated lime, those are typically used. Dry sorbent injection, that's something where there becomes both a technical and an economic play in terms of there's a multitude of hydrated lime grades, as well as various sodium sorbents like the trona and the sodium bicarbonate that are out there. I'd say it's heavily predominant towards calcium calcium-based solutions, but sodium still has a play in terms of the DSI solution. And that is your day job, right, Jerry? Yeah, I'm a flue gas treatment expert at LaWast, doing a lot of work in dry sorbent injection, but heavily involved also in the circulating dry scrubber. So that's ultimately what led me to get involved with DSUA. My desire was to get involved because wanting to see the content as diversified as possible to include not just spray dryers, but also DSI and circulating dry scrubbers. So that's kind of what led to me to want to get more actively involved in that role kind of grew since I joined with DSUA. Yeah. And just so people understand, most of these scrubbers, what they're essentially doing is they're pulverizing the calcium, the lime, the hydrated lime, and finding ways to essentially swirl it around, right? And it's mixing with the flue gas, and that's how it's absorbing these harmful pollutants, right? It's a chemical reaction, and a very critical aspect is making sure that the sorbent itself comes in direct contact with the gases. On the DSI side of things, where you're talking about various grades of hydrated lime, it gets into a much deeper conversation, but the physical properties, such as the pore volume and surface area, of the hydrated limes really become critical in terms of driving the efficiencies as well as where you apply it. But the distribution is certainly important. When you get into things like spray dryers and circulating dry scrubbers, those properties are still something to be considered. But a big aspect has to do with the integration use of moisture to humidify the gas and try and bring you down closer to the point at which it saturates because the cooler it gets, the more efficient it gets to be. Yeah. So usually you're running these systems as far on the back end after combustion as possible. So the gas is cool as possible. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. With the spray dryers and the circulating dry scrubbers, DSI, I think, becomes more of a viable retrofit technology since the only thing that comes in contact with the actual exhaust gas are injection lances themselves. That's a big part of that solution is understanding the process chemistry and what pollutant you're chasing and what the gas stream is and whether you want to inject ahead of an air heater, after an air heater, after an ESP, ahead of a scrubber or ahead of an SCR. There's a lot of different custom solutions when it comes to DSI about where you want to inject and why. Yeah, take us through a typical cold plant, you know, right after combustion when that air, that flue gas is the hottest and essentially Mm -hmm. the dirtiest, right? What is the usual treatment train? And try to use as few abbreviations as possible. (laughs) Sure, will do. So typically when you get to the back end and you start talking about treatment, it's very common first to start, you want the hotter gas and you start talking about a selective catalytic reactor, SCR. That's ultimately your NOx capture. You find that at a lot of coal-fired power plants and that's ultimately reducing your NOx emissions. And then as you go through there, you ultimately have an air preheater 
which is recovering waste heat from the gas stream to send back to the boiler to improve boiler efficiencies. It gets a little more complicated down here. And depending on the plant, you typically may have some form of particulate capture. So a bag house or a electrostatic precipitator. And then after that, typically, you know, a lot of these high sulfur applications, you may find a wet scrubber to do the bulk of the SO2 scrubbing. Now, if you're looking at dry scrubbers, you may come out of your air preheater and that's where you're going to find your circulating dry scrubber or your spray dry absorber. And then downstream of that is where you're going to find your particulate capture. In more cases than not, that's typically going to be a bag house. And now, if you're looking at the injection systems, again, like I said before, if you integrate dry sorbent injection, it could be anywhere on that back end, depending on what your needs and constraints are and whether it's ahead of the SCR or just ahead of your wet scrubber. Sure. And lime and acid gases essentially form a cake based on, again, that deck of slides I built back in 2008. What happens to that cake? So from the work that we've done, that cake gets captured ultimately and again, your particulate control, we'll call it a bag house. In many cases, that ultimately is going to find its way to a landfill. That cake, for the sake of a circulating dry scrubber, That's the whole nature of the technology because there's still reactive lime that's left. So it gets recirculated back into the scrubber vessel and it has several passes over and over again. So it has multiple opportunities to react with SO2 or the other acid gases. Cake can't be recycled, right? Well, for the circulating dry scrubbers, that's exactly what's happening. It gets captured in the bag house. It gets sent back to a reactor vessel and re-injected. And it comes back in contact with, say, fresh lime as well as water that's sprayed into the reactor. And then it finds its way back into the bag house. And then there are certain control features that dictate whether we're going to re-inject it and continue that recirculation loop. We're actually going to purge it from the system and send it to a waste silo that, again, ultimately, more times than not, finds its way to a landfill. Does it need to be pH neutral by the time it gets to a landfill? It just needs to have a pH below 12.5. That's the point at which it's going to be hazardous waste. DSUA, the group, was formed in 2008, again, around the time that I joined the Coal Foundation Mm -hmm. in Texas. And according to what I've read, that was a peak year for coal use, but also a time when the coal industry new trends were about to change dramatically and as we know they did. Is that why the group was formed up, knowing what was ahead for the coal industry? I'm going to take my best guess on this since I wasn't involved in 2008, but I assume the basis of putting the association together because it is a nonprofit organization. So, you know, the nature of the association is ultimately bringing folks together to collaborate and network. The goal is to bring users as well as vendors together to share solutions, discuss problems, and ultimately at the end of the day, develop solutions, be able to do these solutions better. As we've all seen coal ascend and decline, we've kind of followed a similar trend in terms of the attendance in DSUA over the years. And I think now, given where we're at in the coal market, I think the nature of what DSUA is trying to do is even more important because in many cases, people already have solutions in place, but the goal is how do you optimize these solutions? How can we do it smarter, do it better, do it cheaper, make it more reliable, fundamentally do more with less. We're trying to keep coal alive and economical as long as possible. And these folks that have these dry scrubbers on the back end as part of that. Right. And look, I mean, the reason I started the podcast is I'm a strong coal supporter, but I think we all know that coal is going to continue to decline relative in real terms. So what are the opportunities for your group, international, non-coal generation? My opinion here is that here in the United States alone, there's still going to be some coal plants. I, I agree with the trends. As long as these plants are around, we'll do our best to participate with these folks and have them be integral and develop new solutions. But we also, part of the diversification DSUA is trying to get more 
industrial sectors involved because they do have a lot of these dry scrubbing solutions. We do have folks that come from smelters, come from cement plants, universities that still participate. But I agree. I think a big part of how we've evolved because of COVID and had to kind of go a little bit more virtual has been that we've started to have a little bit more international exposure. I think the U.S. has a lot of great dry scrubbing operating experience and there's a wealth of knowledge and experience here. And a lot of folks that participate in DSUA from a vendor perspective have international capabilities to offer these solutions. So I think this is a great place from an international perspective. You're looking to try and learn from someone else's learning curve and develop a network of folks that have already kind of done things that you're looking to do. This becomes a great opportunity to connect with those folks or listen in on webinars and look at some old presentations. Learn as much as you can before you get yourself into it and have to learn the old fashioned way. All right, Jerry, I'm going to finish with a lightning round of your thoughts on different energy technologies, starting with natural gas. Obviously, there's a fit there, but at the same time, it seems like small plants, low costs, but also volatile. So I feel like there's a place for natural gas, but what's the appropriate energy portfolio that it makes sense long term? Not putting all our eggs in one basket. Nuclear. Everything I hear is that it's a highly efficient technology, but I think there's a lot of perception about how dangerous and scary it can be. But it seems like there's a good fit for nuclear and all for, again, having energy diversification. I think there's a place for nuclear there. Coal, and I'll also add coal with carbon capture. You know, obviously, I'm probably a little biased towards coal. I hope there's always going to be a place for coal because I think it's not as dirty as how it's perceived to be. But I think the technologies are great. So it's going to boil down to economics versus the other energy power supply options. So one day there will be winners and losers in coal plants, but I think a lot of it's going to be based on the economics compared to the other energy options. Wind. It seems like everywhere I turn, people are putting up wind turbines. There's a place for it, but the concern for me is you can't control when the wind blows. And I talked to enough coal-fired power plants that they got to kind of keep their foot on the gas pedal because they can't control when the wind's going to blow and not blow, and they got to be ready to put power on the grid. Solar. I'd probably say the same for solar. All these hopefully battery storage could change all this. I live in Florida. Seems like if there's any state that's ever going to go down the path of solar power, the Sunshine State should be there, but can't control when the sun's going to shine and where it's going to shine for how long. Biofuels. Maybe not a huge part of the energy portfolio, but to me, it makes sense to look at it in terms of diversification. Hydroelectric. There's a place for it. and I'm guessing we have a little bit more control over this than some wind and solar. I'm sure there's a place, but probably not a huge place for it. Energy storage. Assuming this is a technology that continues to evolve and do so in an economical fashion, then you got to feel like these intermittent power supply like wind and solar can become more and more viable when you have the ability to develop energy stores. Electric vehicles. I'm kind of a fan of electric vehicles. I can understand why people don't necessarily want one or do, so kind of teach their own. But I think from energy efficiency and just from a personal cost level, I've seen it myself that it's going to reduce costs. You know, I've run the numbers and it's saving us money and it's exciting. Energy efficiency. When I think of this, my mind just goes back to coal plants because I hear a lot of talk about trying to improve the efficiency of coal plants and improve the economics. And to me, this is along the lines of working smarter and not harder. And I think it really applies to coal and a lot of the stuff we're doing at Dry Scrubbers in some ways, specifically like DSI, for example, some of it isn't about just reducing pollutants going out of the stack. It's about trying to reduce pollutants further upstream in the process so that they can improve the efficiency of the plant, improve the economics. Yeah, I think it's a very relevant subject to dry scrubbers when I think specifically to coal. It's a big part of the optimization step as we're trying to keep some of these coal plants alive. All right, Jerry Hunt. 
Dry Scrubbers Users Association. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jay. I appreciate your time and the opportunity to come out here and talk. It's not just me. There's a whole organization of folks that are out here to help and collaborate. That was Jerry Hunt, president of the Dry Scrubber Users Association. As Jerry mentioned, he's also a manager of flue gas treatment applications for LaWast North America. I want to thank Jerry for his time, as well as Daniel Toft, who I met at PowerGen a year and a half ago. You can find plenty of pictures for this episode on energy-cast.com, as well as on Instagram and Parlor at Host Energy and Twitter at Host Energy Cast. All guests are sent the wrong completed audio the week of release. So far, no complaints. Be sure to leave us a positive review on iTunes. That gets the word out. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. That wraps up episode 119. I'm Jay Dauenhauer. We'll see you next time. Thank you.